So by now, you know that the mission of the church is to make disciples of every nation by introducing them to Christ and teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded us. That seems to be very clear from the scriptures. It doesn't seem to be something that should be debated. Yet for the last 15 to 20 years, the church, especially here in the United States, has not been satisfied with that mission. The idea of making disciples for the Lord Jesus Christ, who are going to be forever with Him, seemed to have been an idea that's not super attractive to the American church. She has largely decided that she can use her time better by relieving human suffering in this life. There's a a general change from the focus to the life to come to this life. Uh, Somebody uh, did a study that looked at what the church has been singing for the last 100 years. And for the last 50 years, 50 years ago and before, something like 93% of the hymns sung in church had to do with heaven and the life to come and eternal life and the coming of Jesus Christ. And now they said the less than 2% of the songs sung in church has to do with the life to come and 98% has to do with the life here. So you see this this change of emphasis to here and now. The idea of living as sojourners and pilgrims on this world has changed and the church has decided this is our home we're not just passing through, as the, the hymn used to say. So social justice issues have become a big emphasis for the church. Social inequality, racial reconciliation, humanitarian efforts has become, have become the focus point for the church. And it was because of this emphasis on social justice issues Because it has become such a big deal in the American Evangelical Church, we decided to cement our understanding of why the church is here by this year as a church, starting back in October, reading together DeYoung's and Gilbert's book, What is the Mission of the Church? Making Sense of Social Justice, Shalom, and the Great Commission. Our uh, our book groups just finished chapter 6 in this month, the month of May. Uh, that's the title of the chapter here, there on the slide, Making Sense of Social Justice and Exposition. This lesson is supposed to cover that chapter, but it will bleed into the next chapter as well because it's a difficult chapter to teach as a standalone. When you read the book, you can just go ahead and read the next chapter, and that's no issue, but as far as the lesson, um, we're going to bleed into chapter 7, and then, Lord willing, in the last Sunday of June, uh, Andrew will... Um, no. Andrew will bring it all together by covering chapter 7 and 8. We're not going to cover the last couple of chapters of the book, and our book studies won't cover that last couple of chapters. Um, we'll be confident you can, you can read it on your own. On this chapter, the authors examine 12 separate passages and, uh, uh, that speak to social justice and the poor. 12 passages that in their studies have been used by evangelicals to justify a change of focus on the mission of the church. Uh, they say that for 2,000 years the church has gotten it wrong, and that these passages, in their new enlightened way of reading them, really should guide how we do the ministry of the church and focus on the here and now more than in the life to come. 
So these passages are often used to justify the emphasis on the social justice movement. The, I'm going to put them here. These are the 12 of them. Uh, Leviticus 19, that the original love your neighbor as yourself passage. Leviticus 25, the year of the Jubilee. Uh, probably something that never went beyond the theoretical concept. Uh, the, 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 even though it's prescribed to the people of God, it's unlikely that ever happened. Uh, the year of Jubilee. Uh, Isaiah 1, confronting the sins of God's people from a social perspective. Same with Isaiah 58. Uh, they claim that that is a, a social justice passage, even though central to the Isaiah 58 is the urgency of observing the Sabbath as a spiritual day of worship. Jeremiah 22, where Jeremiah um, speaks of doing justice and righteousness. Amos 5. Now, the phrase, let's justice roll down like waters, is found in Amos 5, but is also found in a very famous speech delivered by Martin Luther King. Remember the king? Not, uh, I'm sure Martin Luther also preached in Amos 5, but probably a different emphasis as uh, uh, Martin Luther King uh, Jr. there. Isaiah, uh, Micah 6, 8. No, very, very familiar passage. Uh, what has God uh, required of you, O man, uh, but to do justly, walk humbly? with your God, and, and, and so on. Um, Matthew 25, that's the uh, parable of the sheep and the goats. Then um, Luke 10, the Good Samaritan. Luke 16, the rich man in Lazarus. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, where Paul is trying to raise funds for the poor church in Jerusalem. And then James 1, 2 and 5, where it talks about faith without works is dead. So these 12 passages are brought up and analyzed, and some more in details, some less in details, in chapter 6, of our book, for our lesson today, we'll consider two of these passages. And um, I'll trust you can read on the other ones, because these two passages seem to be the anchors to most discussion on social justice issues. And these two passages are going to be Matthew 25 and Luke 10. So we're going to try to cover those two, and then we can address the other ten via Q&A if we have time. All right, so if you have a Bible, well, I would love for you to grab a Bible, pew Bible, phone, whatever you use. And if you turn to Matthew 25, and we're going to read verses 31 through 46. I really encourage you to have a Bible that you use. A Bible that you read, that you know where things are, you know, where you can picture in your head. Oh, it's on the right side, on the top left corner sort of thing, because it does make your study easier. Um, Matthew 25, starting at verse 31, I'm going to read through verse 46. When the Son of Man comes in His glory... And all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides a sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you, from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. 
I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then you also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick in, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and do not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Surely I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment by the righteous into eternal life. For me, it's impossible to read this passage and not hear Keith Green's voice. Uh, as it, he has a, um, not quite a song. It's a recitation of the passage to music. Very animated. If you're watching on YouTube, you can see the spit flying out of his mouth as he's, as he's reciting and playing on, banging on the piano really loudly on this song. So maybe it's one, a Sabbath uh, activity you can do later on is Google Keith Green and the parable of the sheep and the goats to see what it says. Matthew 25 has become a favorite passage of progressive and younger Christians. A few Biblical phrases have gotten as, as much traction as the least of these. If you Google that, you're going to come up with all kinds of ministries now labeled the least of these that have been created to relieve social, as what's perceived as social injustice. And the implications, whether it be increased government spending or increased concern for social justice or, or just a, a general shame, uh, over not doing enough, the implications are usually thought to be obvious from this text. But in popular, the popular use of the phrase, there's almost no careful examination of what Jesus is actually saying here. If you stop to, say, to, to actually read the passage and see what Jesus is teaching, you're going to come, up with a, come out of it with a very different understanding of what the least of these means. Now, the issue is not just with a popular uh, user of the phrase. Even brilliant men have succumbed to this idea that this passage is teaching of the church should be busy relieving poverty and fighting for social equality and so on. There is a, uh, a very... Um, well-known professor at, I think, the University of Virginia. His, his name is James Davids, Davidson Hunter, who wrote a book that was somewhat influential in evangelicalism called To Change the World. And in it, 
Hunter argues at one point that Christ makes our treatment of strangers a measure of righteousness. He then quotes from Matthew 25, followed by this conclusion. He says, To welcome the stranger, those outside of the community of faith, is to welcome Christ, believer or non-believer, attractive or unattractive, admirable or disreputable, abstaining or vile. The stranger is marked by the image of God. And he says that's what this passage teaches. Now, it's certainly true that we all are made in God's image. It's also true, on other grounds, not this passage, that dealing kindly with strangers, even those outside of the church, is a good thing. You can look at Galatians 6, verse 10. But it's difficult to conclude that this is Jesus' point in Matthew 25. That in Matthew 25, Jesus is teaching us that our concern as a church should be to relieve social injustices. So, who are the least of these? That's really the the crux of the matter. In this passage, who are the least of these if they are not society's poor and outtrodden? I'm going to summarize what I think it is, what I believe the passage teaches, and then try to prove that it's the case. The least of these refers to other Christians in need. In particular, itinerant Christian teachers dependent on the hospitality from that family of faith. So in our times, these are the people that are being persecuted and need help because they're proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are the people that are discipling the nations by introducing Christ to them and by teaching them to observe whatever Christ has commanded us. These are the people, the least of these are the people who are proclaiming the gospel where they are and may be suffering persecution or just need the church to come alongside and encourage them and provide for them and so on. That's what I'm going to try to show to you from this passage. So, the identity of the least of these. In uh, how many times is that expression used in the passage as we're reading it? You notice? Twice. It's used twice. In verse 40 and in verse 45. Okay? In verse 45, Jesus used the phrase, the least of these, but in verse 40, he used the more exact phrase, the least of these, my brethren. <clears throat> the two phrases as you look at the narrative, or at the story, refer to the same group. The least of these, or the longer phrase, the least of these, my brethren. So the more complete phrase of verse 40 should be used to explain the shorter phrase in verse 45. Are you with me on that? As you harmonize the scriptures, as we compare scriptures with scriptures, it's called the analogy of faith, compare scriptures with scriptures, we see that the fuller account gives us the fuller picture of what Jesus is teaching. So the fuller phrase tells us who the least of these are, my brethren. And the reference to my brethren there in verse 45 cannot be a reference to all suffering humanity. Because of the, how the Bible uses the word brother. Brother is not used in, in, for all humanity in the New Testament. The word, it always refers to a physical blood, blood brother, 
or to a spiritual family, to the spiritual family of God. Those are the two ways that the word is used in the New Testament. And you can easily confirm that by just a simple search of the word brother, brothers, brethren, and so on. Now, so if that's the case, then we're left with two choices when Jesus says, these the least of my brethren. He either is asking us to take care of James and Judah and Joseph, or, right, because those are his blood brothers, or he must be telling us that we are to take care of our spiritual brothers. He must be insisting that whatever we do for our fellow Christians in need, we do for him. Which I think that seems to be what he's teaching, the spiritual brethren. This interpretation is confirmed when we look at the last time in the Matthew, before chapter 25, where Jesus talks about brethren. So, what's the best way to define a word in the Bible? Word search, yes. Which, Sonia? Look at in other places, yes. So the best way to, these are part of the answer, yes. The best way to figure out what's the meaning of one word in the Bible is to look at the context in which it's used, but also to look at other places that the same author uses, then look at the other places, the same genre. So here, the genre is the Gospels that was used. We use how, then expand to see how that's used in the whole New Testament and the whole Bible, and that gives a good idea of what the word is used. Does it make sense to you? Now think of, in English, think of the word get. G-E-T. What does it mean? Always? Okay. It, the answer has to be, it depends. <laughs> because the context is going to be determined. Is it followed by, prepos- by a pre- uh, uh, preposition? Get up. What does, is get up the same as get down? Both of the word get. So the context in which you use really is king in dictating meaning. And that's true of the Bible as well, because the Bible uses language just like we use language. So in looking at the word brethren here in verse 25, in chapter 25, it's important for us to see how Matthew has used it before. And if you just go two chapters back to chapter 23 of Matthew, which is the very last time that Jesus himself used the word brother before chapter 25. If you look at uh, chapter 23 in verse 1, in verse 1 he addresses the multitudes and his disciples. In verse 8... He calls them brothers and say, oh, look, you said that doesn't mean everybody. But yet in verses 9 and 10, he defines who the brothers are. Look at verses 9 and 10. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. So in verse 8, when he calls brothers, he defines them in verses 9 and 10 as those who have one Father who is in heaven and have one structure that is Christ. So Jesus doesn't call our people everywhere brothers. 
is a particular group of people who are brothers. Those who belong to him and do his will are his brothers. Remember the incident in Mark chapter 3 where Mary and his blood relatives come to him and they're sitting outside, they're worried because they think he's crazy. That, that's their argument. Let's just take him home because he's out of his mind. He's crazy. He needs to be on some sort of medication uh, because he is a crazy man. And they say, Jesus, Jesus, your mother is out there and your brothers. And remember what he says? Who are my mother? Who are my brothers? But those that do the will of my father, pointing to those who had come to faith in, in him. So you see that Jesus himself doesn't look at the word brother as meaning everywhere, everyone, in all of humanity, but a specific group of people. Likewise, it makes more sense to think that Jesus is comparing service to fellow believers with service to him, rather than imagining Jesus to be saying, you should see my image in the faces of the poor, which is actually a pretty common expression, see the face of Christ in the face of the poor. Jesus doesn't teach that. Jesus teaches that we are to see his face in the face of the brethren, the Christian. Right? Because Christ is in us the hope of glory. Any questions so far? All right. Now, granted, Jesus was a man of sorrows, so he to, to understand that. Sufferers may be able to identify with Jesus in a special way is, is wholly appropriate. Right? He was a suffering Savior. So he understands what suffering is. And people who are suffering can hold on to that and be an encouragement to them. But in the rest of the New Testament, it's the body of Christ that represents Christ on earth, not the poor. We don't find out who Christ is by looking at the poor. We find out who Christ is by looking at his bride, who reflects his image to the world. Christ in us is the promise of the gospel for those who believe, not for those living in a certain economic condition. You're not the image of Christ just by being poor financially. Yes, by being poor, but what kind of poverty? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Matthew 25 equates caring for Jesus' spiritual family with caring for Jesus. Remember Paul? Remember when he was going to Damascus to, to arrest and hurt Christians? And he's walking and Jesus comes to him. He finds himself in the dust. Remember what Jesus says to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul could have said, Sir, I was a kid when you are around. I never persecuted you. I never witnessed people persecuting you. How can you say that I'm persecuting you? But what did Christ mean when it says, why are you persecuting me? Because Paul, Saul was persecuting humanity in general? No, he was persecuting the church of Jesus Christ. So those are the ones who are the brethren who are in Christ. So Matthew 25 does not offer the genetic, not genetic, the generic message, care for the poor and you're caring for Christ. 
That's not the message of 25. Any questions or comments on that? All right, just, just to keep on beating the dead horse, okay? We'll even get a little more Greeky in what we're doing. The word least. Now, grammar time. What is a superlative? Noah, want to tell us what a superlative is? No? Something you don't know. Yeah, okay. That, that's a good definition. It's the most extreme version of the word, yes. So you have good. That's the, the, the normal. We have the comparative, which is better. Then you have the superlative, which is best. You have great, greater, greatest. So least is a superlative of small. You have the word microscope. It's a small scope. You see little things through it. So the word micros or microi is the word for small or little. And here is using superlative. Guess who Jesus in the Gospels always call the little ones? His disciples. Yes. And probably the most enlightening yeah, that's funny, huh, Julius? The most enlightening passage is Matthew 10, where he calls his disciples his little ones, when he sends them out to proclaim the gospel to the whole nation of Israel. So if you look at chapter 10 for a second... And you look at verse 42. Jesus says, And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, I surely say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. Who are these little ones? What is it talking about in this chapter? It's important because the similarities is not, are not unlike in this passage when talking about Luke, uh, Matthew 25 as well. If you look at, they're talking about the same thing. Both Matthew 25 and Matthew 10 are talking about the same thing. In verses 40 through 42, Jesus talks about who these people are, these little ones, that if you give them even a glass of cold water, you will be blessed. He's speaking of his disciples because if you look at verses 5 through 15, Jesus is sending out his disciples to do itinerant ministry, to go through all Judea, Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in the face of persecution in a hostile world, Jesus wants to encourage his followers to care for the traveling ministers no matter what cost. You see that in verses 16 through 39 of chapter 10. So here we have, he's talking about the disciples. The little ones are the disciples. That's how he used that word mikroi. Well, when you get to chapter 25, the next time you use the word mikroi, is now in the superlative, the least of these, makes sense to be thinking that still talking about his disciples. Questions on that? That's fine. So, I mean, obviously I haven't read the book, but so that might not be, but I, I'm sure other people here haven't read the book. No. <laughs> Every last person here. Um, 
So I, I, I'm a, obviously I think that this doesn't mean that we, you're saying that we as people in the church should help the poor because the, this church is like involved with things like the gospel mission and mm -hmm. stuff. So where's the balance between saying like these passages don't mean that and the idea that the church can use like service to the community as a gospel testimony? Okay, so... We're going to address this a little bit later, but just to remind us. So there's a, when you talk about the church, you talk about the church as an institution. As an institution, why is it here? It's here to make disciples of Jesus Christ. That's a very specific, narrow purpose. Now, there's a, 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 the New Testament also speaks about the church as an organism. We little see the people in the church. Christians should be doing all these things. But the mission of the church, where... Uh, if you look at the budget and the calendar of the church, it should reflect its purpose, which is to make disciples. Okay, that makes sense. Does it make sense? Mm -hmm. And then we're going to talk a little bit, if we get there, to the principle of moral proximity, that will help us discern some of these things. And if we don't get there, Andrew will get there at the end of June as well. <clears throat> okay. Skip some things here. Let's uh, talk about some applications of Matthew 25 before we jump to Luke chapter 10. So Matthew 25 is about social justice in the sense that it's about caring for the needy. But the needy in view are fellow Christians, especially those dependent on our hospitality and generosity for their ministry. Now the least of these is not a blanket statement about the church's responsibility to meet the needs of all the poor, though we do not want to be indifferent to hurting people. Nor should the phrase be used as a general cover for anything and everything we want to promote under the banner of social justice. So what is our responsibility as far as the church is concerned as we think of Matthew 25? Well, Jesus says that if we are too embarrassed, too lazy, or too cowardly to support our fellow Christians who depend on our assistance and our suffering for the sake of the gospel, we will go to hell. Not interpretation. Look at verse 46. What does verse 46 say? And these... Anybody want to read it aloud? And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Who are the these? If you look back, these who did not do the things for the least of these, my brethren. Well, if that's us, we are going to have hell. Right? So... Let it sink. If we're too embarrassed, too lazy, or too cowardly to support our fellow Christians who depend on our assistance and are suffering for the sake of the gospel, we will go to hell. If we're too lazy, too cowardly, too embarrassed to further the mission of the church, we will go to hell. Not that helping Christians who are in need because of the gospel saves anyone, but because this is one of those fruits of righteousness that signal that we have a genuine faith in Jesus Christ. If the fruit's not there, we have no reason to think that we have the faith. Are we with me on that? 
Yes or no? Okay, thank you. Secondly, we must care about and care for those who are hungry, thirsty, and abandoned because of the gospel. In verse 35, Jesus says, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. How do we do that? This includes prayer. We all often undervalue prayer, but this includes prayer. This includes giving money. We are the richest church in the world. We are the richest church in history, the American church. And this also includes going to suffer with them, not shrinking back. Last time I said this, one of my kids went to the Middle East. (laughs) But unless we're willing to give up our children to die for Christ, we are not really serious about the, the mission of the church. Unless, because it's easier, I think it would be easier for me to give myself to die for Christ than to give one of my kids to die for Christ. Are you with me on that one? I don't mind dying. I don't want my kids to suffer. But unless we're willing to do that, we're really not understanding the importance of the least of these, my brethren, who are suffering for the sake of the gospel. Also, we must care about and care for those who are attacked, beaten, and in prison for the sake of the gospel. That's what Jesus says in verse 36. Notice that in verse 44, the ghosts even know that there was such a group of people. They were not even aware that people were suffering for the sake of Christ. And we may have a general idea, oh yeah, there's some people somewhere suffering for Christ. Who? Who are they? We need need to be aware of who they are so that we might be involved in their suffering. It's true that Matthew, 1 Corinthians 12 speaks of the local church as a body of Christ. But the local church is a representation of the visible church as a whole. And if part of the body is hurting, the whole body suffers and we need to suffer with them. That's, part, that's, that's the social justice that Jesus Christ is looking for here in Matthew 25. Any questions? Andrew. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any comments on the propriety of that phrase at all? I prefer not using it in a favorable way, just because how it's understood by by other people, and because everything is recorded, everything is everything. People can be taken out of context. I think because our culture uses it in a certain way. Now, people say, oh, we need to rescue this word or that word. Sure, but we have to be very careful how we're going to do that. Because does the Bible talk about social justice? I think so. But justice in the Bible is not equality of outcomes. Justice in the Bible is equity in, in the application of the law. That the law is applied the same way for the poor or the rich. Not that everybody's going to have the same. Right? So, sure, you can talk about social justice in that way. But if I say social justice, that's not what most people are going to understand. So I prefer, if I only have a second, I prefer not to use it. If we're going to have a conversation and I can have all kinds of whereases, like a, excuse me, an overture to synod or a resolution, or whatever, explaining, then, yeah. 
Does it make sense? Any other questions? All right, eight, uh, Christian. That's Christian Maslach, by the way. He's an elder at Sharon, uh, Grace Bible Presbyterian Church in Sharonville, Ohio. He's also a student at the seminary of which I'm the president. So be careful with your <laughs> with your bomb. <laughs> I have tenure at my day job, so. I'm <laughs> Mm-hmm. And in response to the question that was asked earlier, you said Christians ought to be doing these things, mm-hmm. caring for the poor. Would it be fair to say then that if the Christians in a church body are not doing these things, if the Christians in the church body are not caring for the poor as Christians, are not loving their neighbors as themselves, or calling them, that the church is failing to make disciples of Christ? Maybe. It's, a, it's, it's something the church needs to look at because a, a, a component of being a disciple of Christ is loving people, right? But primarily the people of God. And that's when, if we ever get to it, that principle of moral proximity will help us kind of navigate through that. Any other questions? All right, so turn to Luke 10. We have seven minutes for this. Luke 10, that's the parable of the Good Samaritan. <clears throat> if you look at, uh, starting verse 25, we have this interaction with, uh, with this lawyer. He's testing Jesus. He's not trying to really find the truth. He's just trying to catch Jesus on his words. And Jesus answers them, answers him in the way that actually uh, puts him on the corner, corner the, the, the lawyer, the old man. I was going to catch him in his word. He caught me at my words. He quotes Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, the, the two passages that are there. And this is important for us to realize that Jesus is quoting these passages because these passages were given specifically to the people of God. Not to people in general, but to the covenant community of God, how they should behave toward one another. Okay? So he, he quotes that. And then the parable that follows there. Uh, starting in verse 30, is an explanation, illustration of these two passages that Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. Now, the Samaritan in Luke's writings, Luke focuses often on the underprivileged of society and showing how the gospel reaches even to the, 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 the outcast. You have the prostitute, you have the Samaritan here, and so on. And the Samaritan in Luke's writings is more often than not the picture of the unlike, unlikely convert. Uh, the, somebody that wouldn't come to Christ. And yet, this guy is clearly the portrait, portrait of a Christian. Think about it. The priest and the Levite who walked by, who were raised in the covenant community, acted like they were outsiders, and the one who came from the outside acts faithfully in this parable. And notice that the guy who was beaten up was likely a Jew. Why do you think I'm saying that? The passage doesn't say explicitly. I heard down. Is that down, down, down in my heart? No, no. Well, maybe, but because you could be in Rome and you still be going up to Jerusalem. So, 
But somebody said uh, there's going between Jerusalem and Jericho. Yeah. You hear somebody say that? Yes. So he is in Judea, right? Where Jews lived. Also, Jesus goes out of the way to say that the guy helping him is a Samaritan. But it doesn't say that about the guy being helped. So more than likely, this guy is a Jew. He's a member of the covenant community. So the, the parable of the Good Samaritan is then primarily about helping the brother who is right there in front of you. Here, priest, here, Levite, you walked right by it. You see the brother there. You grew up in the church. You knew all about the word of God. You've been trained, and you saw the need of the brother, and you walked away. Here we have the guy that's an unlike, an unlike convert. He didn't grow up in the church. He came to faith in Christ, and yet he sees the guy in need, the brother in need, and he immediately goes to help. Which one is the fulfillment of the law of God? You, lawyer, Pharisee, scribe, who grew up in the church and know all about the, the Bible, or this guy who is a convert to, uh, unlike convert to Christ and saw the need of the brother and helped him? He says the Samaritan is fulfilling the law. And that's a big slap on the face of the lawyer. Who was the lawyer not in the sense of civil law, but a lawyer in the sense of the law of the Torah and of the Talmud, if it's true the Talmud was around at that time. Does it make sense to you? Are you with me? Do you care? <laughs> Just, so, so you're saying the Samaritan was a Christian? I, yeah, I, I'm saying that he was, a, yes, a believer in the God that the lawyer should have been a believer in. And uh, he's saying, so Jesus is saying that this Samaritan has more faith than you, lawyer, who is trying to catch me at my words. All right. So what is it teaching us? Really, it's teaching us about this principle that's been labeled the principle of moral proximity. There are so many people needing help all over the world. We can't possibly help them all. So how do we pick the people we should help? Or are there people we must help? There are two components to answer this question. One is this. We need to define who our neighbor is in terms of proximity. And this can be literal distance or affinity. And we need to define who our neighbor is in relationship to Christ. In order to define the must from the should. You do understand there's a difference, right, between the word must and the word should. The Samaritan Luke's writings, oh, sorry, the, the principle of moral proximity will help us figure that out. Moral proximity means moral obligation. And the principle is straightforward, but it's often overlooked. The closer the moral proximity to the, of the poor, the greater the moral obligation to help. So moral proximity does not only refer to geography, though that can be part of it. Moral proximity refers to how connected we are to someone by virtue of familiarity, kinship, space, time. And the principle helps us to differentiate obligation from wisdom. The closer the moral proximity to the poor, the greater the moral obligation to help. So I must help somebody who is next to me I should help somebody far away who I don't know, if I can. See the difference there? 
And the Bible teaches that throughout, which is something that hopefully Andrew will address at the end of June, so Christian may have to come back to drop his bomb uh, uh, if, uh, if he's going to drop a bomb. Any questions about the things I said? Rick? Would uh, helping out at the uh, oh, no, I can't remember. would you be church disciplined by the church for not being involved in it? No. Okay. So is that a must? But you should. Titty. Uh, do you feel like in sorry? Do you feel like in reaction to like the movement as the church like says this is our mission in acknowledging this that there's an easy like hole in between the must and the should that like maybe like we as individuals can get comfortable in and say like I covered all the musts, the shoulds are you know some they're not mandatory necessarily. Whereas, like, because there's so many, there's this movement to do this social justice, so these churches are making that priority, the churches in reaction to them, maybe there's less individuals within the church going out and, like, say we all think human trafficking is bad. The local church is not going to put funds into that, but the individuals, maybe there's... Mm-hmm. And I know that God puts different things on different people's hearts, but do you understand what I'm yes. And that must have been a Thomas's child by the look of, uh, no, no, okay. Steve looked so, uh, um, yes, yeah, so would the emphasis on the must kind of um, de-emphasize and get people not to be involved with things that they should be involved and so on? Maybe. It, it's, it's likely the human heart finds all kinds of excuses to not to do things that uh, would be pleasing to God. I do think, though, that the, um, it's easier to fight human traffic than to proclaim Christ to your sister who doesn't want to listen to the gospel. It's easier to dig wells in Africa than to talk to your dad who thinks he is sufficient to himself and doesn't need Christ. So I think it goes the other way. The, the social justice movement is actually something, well, I can actually do this, and it's not that hard as it is to actually make disciples of Jesus Christ. So, yes, I think that could be, you know, we all, the, as, as we are all filled with idolatry and we might not be involved in the things that we should do, but I think it tends to go the other way, away from the gospel, away from the mission that God's given us, and make the shoulds must than the other way around. I see their hands. I'm three minutes over. Um... Ask all questions to Andrew. He will have every answer. Email them to me. Yes. I will include them. Seriously. If you let me put a picture of you as well. Yes. <laughs> so if you go to Hoy, if you mail to Hoy at uh, OlympiaBP.net, he'll get it. No joke. And then he can try to address it when he teaches at the end of June. Okay? But do it right away. Don't wait till the morning of the first of the last Sunday of June. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for um, being able to grow together in our knowledge of the scriptures. We pray that we'll be faithful to, to the meaning that you convey in it, and that we'd live it out for asking Jesus' name. Amen.